Welcome to Calvary Chapel Sebastian Podcast. We hope that you're blessed by this message. All right. Well, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Otherwise, pull out your Bible and turn to uh, the book of Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. And I just want to say I do realize that we kind of stopped. Um, I was excited to teach on the passage of the pigs that went over the cliff. Remember that? And so... um, Uh, But we didn't get a chance to do that, and there's just so many guest speakers on Wednesday night, I just didn't want to rearrange the whole thing, and everybody's got vacation plans coming up for the year and that, so we just read that. There's a great, and I'll just tell you, if you want to Google um, John Corson, uh, John Corson, C-O-U-R, someone correct me, S-O-N, John Corson, and you can look up that Matthew passage, the end of chapter 8, with the uh, demons that are into pigs and, and went over the cliff. Um, he did a phenomenal job of teaching that passage, and uh, that was the first time that I heard that passage taught. He's a Calvary Chapel pastor uh, out there at Applegate, and um, so what a great, great teaching. So I just encourage you to click on that and find that if you want to keep, you know, if you're taking journaling, and I know we're all journaling and, and keeping that in our Matthew notes. So, um, but anyhow, we're going to be in uh, chap- Matthew chapter 9. You remember Pastor Ryan taught last week, and uh, so we'll be picking up in verse 14. Y'all there? We good? Matthew chapter 9, verse 14. We're going to read this uh, verse number 1. I'm going to then kind of break it down, and we'll go back to that and then pick up on the teaching. Um, So verse 1, we're all there. It says, then John's disciples, circle that word John's disciples, okay? Because really, when when I first read this, usually you're like Jesus' disciples, right? But this says, then John's disciples came and asked him, this is Jesus, how is it that we, meaning John's disciples, his followers, and the Pharisees, remember they're religious leaders, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples, Jesus, do not fast? Okay? And so um, I want to answer this question for the first first question I want to get to is, who was John's disciples? If you're like me, does that kind of catch you off guard? Yeah, it's like, what do you mean John's disciples? Jesus is on the scene. Jesus has disciples, right? So what do you mean one of John's disciples came, and and I thought only Jesus had them, but I want you to see on the slide here, in Mark chapter 1, verse 2, um, Mark chapter 1, verse 2, it, it says... I will send, this is a prophet, so Mark's quoting this prophet. He says, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight the paths for him. Now, who's he talking about? John the Baptist. So this is John the Baptist's, one of his disciples. Now, remember, before Jesus hit the scene, John was the forerunner of Jesus Christ. So he's there, he's on deck, he's ministering, he's sharing the gospel, he's baptizing people in water, and he's telling them that that there is one coming that's greater than me, remember? And he says, I'm not even worthy to tie his sandals, but John the Baptist was that, he fulfilled that prophet that Isaiah was talking about. He was the messenger that came before Jesus, to fulfill. And so John the Baptist, remember, he came for one purpose and one purpose only, and that was to spread the gospel for the people to repent of their sins and to water baptize them and prepare them. 
And so we know all throughout all four gospels that the people heard John, they obeyed, and then they followed him. In fact, they came, they became his disciples. And so we know that now Jesus comes, remember he says, look the lamb, and he and identifies, remember Jesus was baptized by John. And so Jesus came fulfilling everything that John proclaimed to those who would receive and listen. But in verse one, we see here now that one of John's disciples who apparently did exercise the act of fasting, just like the Pharisees, came to Jesus with this question. And so first of all, that's good to know that John, in all of his discipleship before Jesus, he's, remember, he's got the Old Testament to go off of, and I'll, I'll give you some scriptures in a little bit when we get to talking about fasting, but he's going off the Old Testament, he's obeying the old law, he's teaching people until Jesus comes, but there, so it appears that they are fasting, so John fasted, he taught his disciples to fast, but he also, in this verse one, he's saying, hey, the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders are also fasting, so we're doing this together, but I wanna pull up on a slide. Here's the proof that we know, and I love this story, and I don't have time to break it down, but I will show their attitude. This verse picks up an attitude of how the Pharisees fasted, but look what it says in Luke 18, 10. Some of you know this story, but two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, listen to his prayer, God, I thank you. In other words, thank God that I'm not like other people. Thank God that I'm not a robber, an evildoer, or an adulterer, or even like this tax collector standing next to me praying to you, right? But he says, and then he's like, he elevates himself above these people. And then he says, in fact, he gives his resume. He says, I do what? I fast twice a week and I give a 10th of all I get. And, and I would love to teach just that passage because there's a big, there's a lot of messages in there. But doesn't that show you the attitude of the, fair, the religious leaders, Right? He's basically saying, that'd be like me saying, well, I'm glad that I'm not like Steve Miller or Chris Kluse or Dana Weiss, you know, or Ryan or any, it's like, it's like I, I, I think that my, that my worship unto God is better than anybody else's and I'm gonna stick to the T, like even my act of worship is better than yours. And you understand that's the attitude. That's the attitude that Jesus hated about these religious leaders. So when you read all throughout the gospels, that's why Jesus got so upset. He was constantly pointing his finger, constantly just saying, you got it wrong, you got it wrong. And this is the attitude. But when we come to fasting, I want you to understand that here is a disciple of John and John saying, hey, we fast, the Pharisees fast. But the problem, the difference is, is that when the Pharisees fasted, they exercised fasting not out of a spirit of humbleness or repentance, but they often fasted just wanting to either impress themselves or they wanted to impress others with their spirituality. You get that? And so they viewed fasting as a religious exercise, but with no spiritual purpose or meaning to them. And it's kind of like just going through the motions, checking the boxes. And 
And so I believe that John the Baptist's followers or disciples, they fasted for the right reasons and not for the wrong reasons that the Jewish leaders were accused of. So I believe that there's a contrast here when, when John's disciple is talking to Jesus. But I want to ask you a question for a side note and just talk a little bit about fasting. When I say the word fast, what comes to mind? Like, what's the first word that comes to some of your mind? Some of you shout it out. Worship. Food or lack of. Somebody back there? Reliance. There you go. Yeah. And so when we think of fasting, you know, I, I was a believer for quite a while before I really even like understood. I've heard it. I've read it. But I didn't really gravitate to what does fasting mean. So I want to talk a little bit about that tonight. So the question would be, what is fasting? Um, why should we fast? Here's one, when should we fast? Or how should we fast? What are the right reasons to engage in fasting? What, are there any wrong reasons to fast? And so we're gonna look into that too a little bit. The first thing that I wanna point out is that the, when, when we look at bi, uh, fasting in the Bible, we can always see based on every verse that it always is based on a spiritual purpose. There's a spiritual purpose for fasting that is described. And remember, after Jesus appeared to John and John baptized him, where did the spirit lead him? To the desert for how long? 40 days. And we know that because of that, it's as in Luke chapter four, it says that Jesus ate nothing during that time. So the first thing that I wanna point out to you about fasting is, is that Jesus even fasted. Okay, and it's interesting that, it, remember it says the spirit led him to the desert, and so he was in preparation for his ministry, and so he was fasting, and we'll get to that. You'll see that correlation in why we fast. But in, in fact, in John 4, 34, <clears throat> Jesus said, my food, said Jesus, is that I do the will of him who sent me to finish his work. You notice that? And so he, he, he did fast for 40 days and he knew that he had an assignment, an appointment, something new that he was going to do. He had come for a purpose. And so I want you to understand that biblical fasting expresses our sincere hunger for God himself and nothing else. First thing, and I got it up on the screen that I want you to write down. It's a great definition. Biblical fasting is a practical and tangible way of denying our flesh, physical food, or other physical pleasures, and engage in prayer with greater concentration. I know it's a little bit long, but fasting is not just um, solely about food. It's about our flesh. It's about pleasure. It's about all that. So write that down. I'll say it one more time if you're listening. Biblical fasting is a practical and tangible way of denying our flesh, the physical food or other physical pleasures, and engage in prayer with greater concentration. That word concentration is what we're going to focus on. So fasting is simply saying no to our flesh and yes to the spirit. That's really what it boils down to. And it's a time that we do that. So when we fast, we should always include a personal time of prayer with, with the Lord, okay? 
And so if you, um, maybe some of you have fasted in here, I'm sure there's many that have, um, but when you fast, be sure to, to engage and include prayer, a personal time of prayer with the Lord during fasting. And, and the reason why is because all throughout scripture, we'll see fasting and prayer found together. And so I'm just gonna give you a couple examples. You can just write them down, just get a couple. Acts 14, 23. They prayed and fasted and came to the conclusion that um, they had to separate the team. You know, Barnabas went one way, Paul went the other. And so they prayed and fasted and came to that. Luke 2, Luke chapter 2, verse 37, Matthew 17, 20, and then 1 Corinthians 7, 5 are just a few in the New Testament. And we'll look at some in the Old Testament. So when we fast, we are to enter into prayer. And we're to do it together. Scripture always shows that all throughout, and there's a purpose. But here's the key I want you to know. When we fast and pray at the same time, we need to do it in faith. We need to add faith to that. We need to believe that when we, when we say no to our flesh and we concentrate on the Lord through prayer and through self-denying, that we, by faith, will hear for the Lord. And so that brings up the next question. I have it up on the screen that'll come up. So the question should be, well, Pastor David, why should we fast? Better yet, and just change the word, why should I fast would maybe be the question tonight for you personally. Why should I fast? Well, here's a couple things. Fasting produces self-denial. Sometimes the truth is we just get off guard. We just get discombobulated. We we, we, we were close to the Lord at one time and then we got so busy or job change or all these things coming at us and we find ourselves feeling so far away from the Lord. Or maybe some things are grabbing our attention or maybe some things start to mean more to us. And so it's a time where we just have this self-denial and that we just come back to the Lord and focus on not the things of us or our desires or our pleasures, but that we, that we deny those things for a season and come back to the Lord, get back in line with the Lord. Here's the next one. Fasting produces self-discipline. So, some of us just need to place ourselves under discipline. Um, we're in a world of instantaneous gratification. Anything we want, we can have it. I mean, from food to cars to whatever. And it's all there. It's like, it's just the society we live in. But, but I think it's good to, to provide self-discipline, right? And, and when we think of temptation, if we're used to, when we fast that we, that we exercise self-discipline, guess what? When temptation comes, it's good to have a, a blade of self-discipline, isn't it? And so we need, fasting produces self-discipline through that process. Fasting also produces humility, it's saying, God, I solely depend on you. I'm nothing. I need to hear from you. I, I, I see you as Lord over all, Lord of everything. You are the most important thing in my life. It's, it's a humble approach to God that, that we need him, that we can do nothing without him. Next, interesting one here is fasting is an act of, of repentance. Now that's where we get into the Old Testament. So if you would to Google fasting in the in, in the Old Testament, look up verses in the Old Testament with words fasting in. I like to do those word searches. Some of you probably do that as well. You'll see a ton of Old Testament coming up. I want to read to you a passage when when we say that fasting um, is an act of repentance. 
let me read to you Joel chapter two, verse 12. You'll know the first part of this verse, or the, you won't know the first part as much, but the second part you definitely know. So I'm gonna read verse 12 and 13. Even now, declares the Lord, return, with, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. And so we see here that fasting is an act of repentance. You often see the word fasting and mourning or mourning and sackcloth, right? It's where, you know, or, or you, you, you just wear these old clothes, you rip your clothes and you fast and you mourn and you repent. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a sign of repentance to the Lord in the Old Testament. Um, here's the next reason. Fasting is an act of dependence upon God. I kind of touched upon that. It's just total dependence on God. Maybe you're in a situation where you, you can't control it. Like your wisdom or your, your, your thoughts, your, what you tried to do, you just realize that there's nothing you can do about your situation. And fasting, it's a great reason to fast because it really is just saying, God, I don't know what to do. I need you. I need to hear from you. I need, I need to depend on you. Here's the next one. Fasting gives us wisdom from God when we need it. Many of us have to make decisions. And um, all throughout scriptures, um, you know, fasting was used to hear from the Lord, to hear specifically from the Lord. That's why we fast and pray. That's why prayer is so important that as we're fasting, as we are, are denying our flesh and seeking more of the spirit, prayer comes into it because we need to be hearing from God while we're doing that. And so maybe when we have a decision, what a great time. You have no peace. It's like you got to make a decision and both decisions seem really bad but that's your options and you have no peace about either road to go down. Fasting, I, I would just say fast, go into a, a three-day fast or, or a week or whatever it is that the Lord's speaking to you and trust him by faith, remember by faith, that he will speak to you through this time. Um, and the next one kind of goes hand in hand. Fasting helps us determine God's will. That's all about hearing from God. And then number, the last one, fast when something is earnestly desired from God. And I look at that as not like, uh, God, get me a new car, but it's kind of like, God, help me to know what to do for this neighbor or help me to know what to do for uh, a loved one or, or help me uh, walk in your will with your decisions that I wouldn't get ahead of you, those kind of things. So that's kind of some reasons, in a nutshell, there's many more, but that's kind of some reasons why we would fast and pray. Now, what's important is because the Pharisees didn't have it right, so I want to kind of cover what fasting is not. Can we do that? So I've got a couple that we'll talk about. First one, fasting is not a manipulative way to get what we want from God. I need to hear an Amen. Yeah, we can manipulate a lot of things in our lives, but we cannot manipulate God. It is not, it's not hoops that we jump through to look spiritual or to, or to try to convince God. God knows our hearts, so when we fast, we've got to come to him in, with sincere hearts. It's not a way to manipulate him or a tool that the Bible gives us to just go through to hope that, okay, God, well, I did that. Now what are you going to do for me? It's that wrong expectation, and so be careful with that. Fasting is not about physically losing weight. 
Although I, I love that benefit, right? So, but it's not, it's like, uh, I don't fast to lose weight, right? That's not the reason. You will, it, it, depending on how long you fast. Um, but um, it's not just specifically for that. It's not a physical gain um, for fasting. It's a spiritual gain. Um, fasting is not a religious ritual to prove our spirituality. I want to read you a passage in Matthew six sixteen. Um, this is what... Um, Matthew was talking about later on down the road when we get to it, but I wanted to point it out. It's not for for religious uh, impression. Look what it says when you, or listen to what it says. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full, basically, if you go around telling everybody how spiritual you are and how you're fasting and, 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 you know, and, and you're bragging about it or you're causing attention to yourself, it's not for that. Verse 17 says, but when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face, basically clean yourself up. Don't mourn, don't look terrible like they were doing. It was a common thing that they would do so that everybody would see them as spiritual in the streets. But he says, no, put oil on your head, wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. I was thinking about this, Michelle Harville, and she's not here so I can talk about her because I know I would embarrass her. But Michelle's on vacation from production and she deserves a vacation, amen? She's so faithful and she's part of this family. But you know, when we did the the celebration day on Wednesday and Michelle came up and gave her testimony, I had no idea what she was gonna talk about. But what did she say? She said, you know, she said, I chose to fast that entire week. And she read us her journal of what God was telling her during her fast. You know what's cool about that? You know what? Michelle will get a reward in heaven because Michelle was with us every morning. She was there for rehearsal. She was there opening the doors. She was there in the evenings. And she spent a lot of time with us during prayer culture week. And she never once that I know of told anybody that she chose to fast or that she was fasting this week. She didn't have a bad attitude. She didn't act weak. She didn't draw attention to herself. And I thought, that's Michelle Harville. I'm gonna write in my Bible, Michelle Harville, 2019. What a great example that she not only fasted, but she followed the scriptures. And that's what, that's what Matthew is talking about. Next, here's another reason. Fasting is not a ploy to get God to love us more. Don't get caught in that trap. Well, if I do this, God will love me. Or if I serve here, God will love me. Or if I give a certain amount and not pay my bills, God will love me more. Don't include fasting in that, in that circus. That's the wrong mindset. We don't want to do that as, as well. We want to fast when we feel God, the Spirit, is leading us to fast. And no other reason, not for any selfish motives or emotion that we feel like we're far away, so we need more of his love. God loves us anyways. It's not what we can ever do for him. His love is automatic. He pursued us first with his love. And then finally, fasting is not a substitute for obedience. Now, we know the Old Testament says that we are to fast and, and, and mourn. That's an act of repentance. But I want to tell you, church, it's not like go sin and then fast. Go sin and then fast. Go sin and then fast. It's not cheap grace. It really isn't. And the best thing that I can think, another way that I see some people in, in, in my church, um, uh, 20 years of being in churches, 
People just have an area of their life where they just cave into temptation and every weekend when the altar call is here or wherever the church is, how they do an altar call, they come up. They come forward and they give their life to Christ again and they give their life to Christ again. If you're a church that keeps track of those records, you're like, he got saved seven times. I guess Jesus was off the clock that day, right? But see, that person needs to understand that when you get saved, that you're to turn away. And if you need help with that, we're here to help do that. We're here to show you scriptures. And so don't fast for the reason that you're just simply wanting to be right with Jesus. That's not the reason to do that. And so now that we see the importance of fasting, um, let's go back to verse one. Uh, In Matthew, we read it. I wanna read it again. How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Basically, the paraphrase here that, that you can see is, Jesus, why don't we see your 12 men that are following you around not fasting like the rest of us? That's what they wanna know. Because remember, some of Jesus' disciples were complaining about John's disciples across the lake. Jesus, they're baptizing in your name. How did Jesus respond? He said, hey, they're baptizing in my name. That's John. That's what he does. That's what he did before I got here. It's okay, relax. You know, and now we see where John's disciples are saying the same thing to Jesus, like, well, what's your deal? Why aren't your boys fasting like us? Why do they get to eat all the time with you? Your fish and loaves of bread, right? That's basically what they're asking Jesus. And I think it's a great question. It's a valid question because they're learning. And the reason why John's disciple is asking Jesus is because they were following the Old Testament along with the Pharisees. God told people to fast. And yet he's saying, your men aren't fasting. I want to know Why? What's really cool in verse 15, look down, look how Jesus responds. It's an interesting way to respond and answer. Jesus answered, how can the guest of the bridegroom, there's that word mourn, while he is with them? Don't let that word bridegroom mess you up. Bridegroom is basically, he's the groom, the church is the bride. It's a, it's a picture of the coming of Jesus. It's a picture of the covenant that he came, that he didn't do away with the Old Testament, but he came to fulfill the new covenant. He was the groom and we, the church is the bride. And that's what that means with bridegroom. But he's saying, and you know what the word mourn is, but, but what he's saying is, I'm here. They're with me and I'm here right now. I'm going to break that down. You see, it wasn't right for Jesus' disciples to imitate the Pharisees in their hypocritical shows. We don't, he didn't want them to do that. But also, on the other hand, according to John's disciples, it wasn't necessary for them to imitate John's disciples either because in, in their ministry, John was preparing them for the coming of Jesus. Remember, Jesus wasn't there yet. And so if Jesus wasn't there yet, then fasting was to do what? Hear from God. Right? Jesus hadn't arrived. So John was doing right by teaching them. But, it, but now that Jesus' disciples are with him, Jesus is saying, they're with me. I'm with them. I'm here. I'm with them. I'm speaking to them. Jesus' disciples were living in the experience that John tried to prepare his disciples for. But now Jesus is here. And the disciples were actually with him doing life with the Son of God. 
And remember what I told you fasting is for. Fasting gives us wisdom from God when we need it. The reason why the disciples didn't need to fast was because they didn't need wisdom while they were with Jesus. Remember, he was leading them with his divine wisdom moment by moment, day by day. They were with the Savior. They heard from God because they were with God when Jesus was with them. But look at the rest of verse 15. Jesus goes on to say, he says, but, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And then, look at your Bible, circle that. And then they will fast. You see? And so I love how he answers this. He's explaining to them. Jesus was talking about the day that he would be arrested, taken from the disciples, given a trial, and endure the nails on the cross and be taken away. And when that day happens, by the way, that was an early prelude to the disciples. I don't know if his disciples picked up on it yet. But if I'm one of the disciples, I'm going, wait a minute, what did Jesus say? He's not with us forever, like ever and ever. And remember, he kept telling them all throughout scripture, my time has not yet come. I don't even think they knew what he meant then. But he kept saying, my time has not come. He even told his mom, Mary, at the party, Water to wine, my time has not come, mom. And so if I'm a disciple, I'm queuing in going, what do you mean you're, the bridegroom's gonna be taken away? But he says, but when that happens, that's when they are to be instructed to fast. And so we ourselves, church tonight, us, Calvary Chapel of Sebastian, we find ourselves tonight at a time where Jesus is indeed not walking with us in the flesh, is he? But he is here in spirit. And so therefore, we are called to fast. Remember, he's not with us, so now we want to hear from God. And that's the whole purpose of why they didn't fast. Now, uh, I got to answer this question. Maybe you're asking, well, Pastor David, how should we fast? And so maybe, you know, and I know a lot of you are very mature here tonight, and you know, and you fasted, but for those maybe than I, here's a couple suggestions. I have it up on the screen. Try, if you've never fasted, try three days of fasting from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Maybe it's no food and no water during that time. Remember, it's a time to focus on the Lord. It's not so much about not eating. That's just an act of self-discipline. It's clarity. It's nothing to distract you from the Lord. And it's to, be, it's to hear from him. And um, maybe do it for three days or maybe do it for five days. Um, maybe you just do one full day of nothing, 24 hours fasting, just nothing. There's many ways to do that. Maybe you abstain from one meal a day while you're fasting. With, and then you, know, then you can get into all the different kinds of fasts, like the no meat, the Daniel fast. And, you know, there's books out there to do that. Um, maybe it's not food. I mean, it's like, well, you know, that's not an issue for me. Um, maybe it, maybe you limit pleasures. Maybe it's coffee. Maybe it's TV, social media, sexual intimacy. First Corinthians seven, five, you already wrote it down if you listen. And that's just that you, uh, withstand from sexual intimacy with your wife or your husband for a period of time. But then notice that in that verse, it also says, don't do that for very long because temptation will come your way. But it also just says, Hey, if that's distracting you, then, then, then don't do that for a while. And so these are just some of the ways, obviously, if you're a diabetic, you have special dietary you know, health conditions, you just got to be really careful with that. Maybe it's not even going to be food at all. You know, we, the Lord certainly understands that. But it's, again, the whole thing is it's self-denial. 
It's self-discipline. It, it, it's, a, it, it's dying to yourself of your flesh and, and wanting to hear more from the Spirit. We good with that? All right, cool. Verse 16, look at it. It says, and he goes on, and he's describing this now. He's using these metaphors, the Jesus metaphors. He says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Any ladies here sew? Raise your hand. Yeah. So I ask you, any men that sew? Sorry, I didn't mean to be like tucked back in the 50s. There you go. Thank you, Kim. Anybody else? Man up. Thank you, Rick. Look, all right, Bobby. Cool. Good, my button's falling off here. I'm going to give you my shirt at the end of the service. (laughs) Oh, you don't love me that much. Thanks. (laughs) But let me just ask you, all of you that sew, do you ever take material, 50, 50% cotton polyester and 50% cotton? Do you ever make the front of the shirt uh, 100% cotton and the sleeves 50, 50 polyester? You ever do that? Why not? What happens when you throw it in the washer? What's that going to look like? (laughs) Right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, wait a minute. Now, a wineskin, now remember, a wineskin in, in the biblical definition is a spouted satchel, and it was made for the storage and transportation of wine. Now, don't call the disciples alcoholics. They're not. Remember, wine didn't have the alcohol consistency that we have today. It was used, it was fermentation of grapes because you didn't have water everywhere, so you had to store it. You had to have that. And remember, that's why Paul said, hey, go ahead and drink wine because, hello, hydrate your body. But don't drink too much because you could get intoxicated. Don't get drunk on wine, but get drunk on the Holy Spirit. But they use wineskins, so his metaphor here with the wineskins is, notice the new satchel is, is leather, and it comes from the skin of an animal, and when you pour the new wine, the process begins uh, of fermentation, doesn't it? And when fermentation happens, some of you, I know, you got cellars and you make beer up north, whatever, back in the day. But the fermentation process with the yeast, when you add that is, is what does it do? It, it, it what? It expands. So when you have the new wineskin, guess what the new wineskin does? Because it's not dry yet. So it expands with it. That's what he's saying. You can't put new wine into an old wineskin. It's not possible because it's already dried. It'll explode, it'll burst, it'll leak. It doesn't work. This is all that Jesus is saying. He says, hey, I'm with the disciples right now. Don't put the Old Testament into the new. They're with me. They don't need to fast. But when I'm gone, yes, you need to fast. You need to hear, you need to pray. You need to do all those things. What was Jesus' point of all this, how he describes it? Jesus reminds us tonight that what is old and stagnant often cannot be renewed and reformed. Think about a church. Think about a new pastor or a new leader. Does the new leader stick with what the old leader did? Most of the time, some of the time, none of the time. Is it wise to do that? Not always, right? It's new. There's a, God often will look for new vessels to contain his new work. And by the way, who was Jesus? He was the new covenant. He was demonstrating to the Pharisees and all that would listen. He just did things a different way, and it was new. It was a, new, it was a gospel. And this is what salvation is 
and the cross is all about. Jesus didn't come to destroy the old law, but he came to fulfill it with new. And praying and fasting was a command to the people of the Old Testament as a sign of repentance. But what Jesus was really telling John the disciple, he says, now I'm here, I'm God in the flesh, and my disciples have full access to me now. Notice, though, he also says, when you fast, you will seek me through prayer. And so today, that is our purpose. Now, we're going to shift gears in verse 18. Um, Verse 18, we're going to look at a healing. Some of your Bibles say, Jesus raises a dead girl and heals a sick woman. I'm going to focus on the sick woman. Uh, We're going to begin in verse 18. We see a, uh, he says, while he is saying this, a synagogue leader, which would be Jewish, and he, he takes care of the temple, takes care of the, the manners and the order of, of the, the temple or synagogue. He came and knelt before Jesus and said, I find it interesting that he knelt before Jesus. That was a sign here in this story that he, he recognized who Jesus was. Most Jewish leaders we see throughout scripture will not kneel before Jesus. But the posture that it's describing this man in in this story, he's kneeling before Jesus. What is he doing? He's acknowledging that Jesus is who he says he is. And he says, my daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples. Now I want you to know that in the middle of going to this daughter to go and see this daughter, now we see that somebody else is gonna be literally pulling on Jesus to do something. Verse 20, just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. And she said to herself, if only, if I could only touch his cloak, I would be healed. Turn with me quickly to Mark chapter five. Mark chapter five. Matthew, Mark, Luke. We're going to skip down to verse 24. I I want to take you to Mark chapter 5 because the gospel of Mark gives a much fuller account of this woman, this woman that's been bleeding and and the healing that that she's going to receive. If you're all there, Mark chapter 5, verse 24. I'm going to begin to read it a little bit repetitive of, of Matthew, but listen. Verse 24, a large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Instead of getting better, she grew worse. Verse 27, when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Verse 30, at once, Jesus realized that the power had gone from him. He turned around in the crowd, and he asked, who touched my clothes? I want to stop right there and go, Jesus is Jesus. You think he needed to ask who touched him? Do you think that he's not in control of his father's power that goes through him? You think he didn't know who that power was directed to, right? He's Jesus. But I love Jesus' approach in every situation that we get to read in the Gospels. He knew. He knew who got healed. He's not aloof. Who's, what we're about to read, I want you to understand, he's doing this to draw out the woman. The woman is now healed. 
But he's like, we need to deal with something. There's more than just your bleeding going on here, woman. And so look at verse 30. At once, Jesus realized that the power had gone out from him. He turned and groaned. He asked, who touched my clothes? Verse 31, you see the people crowded against you as disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? The disciples don't get it. They're like, there's so many people pressing against you. There's hundreds of people. You want us to tell you who touched? And Jesus is like, you missed it. I'm not even asking you. Go back to what you were doing. Verse 32, but Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, she came and she fell at his feet. And she did what? says that she trembled with fear. Circle trembled with fear. And she told Jesus the whole truth. I want to pick this story apart because there's an important message alone in this. This woman was experiencing more than ordinary menstrual bleeding, ladies, right? 12 years. She had been to the doctors. She had spent all her money. There was no cure. See, this woman had an acute condition that she had been suffering for a long day. 12 years, 12 years of the pain and the suffering. And I tend to think that this woman's condition made her embarrassed to the point that she didn't come to Jesus in front of him, did she? She came from behind. She didn't want to speak to Jesus about it. She probably didn't even want to speak publicly about it. And it said that she was trembling with fear. She didn't want to go public about her situation. Why? Because according to the Jewish custom, she was considered ceremonially unclean. And she would be condemned if she even touched Jesus or anyone else at that matter. The very fact that she was in a heavy crowd would be forbidden for her to be a part of because no doubt how many people must have brushed up against the unclean woman. And she was belittled and embarrassed. And she walked in that condition for 12 years. Leviticus, up on the screen, chapter 15, we see a picture of the law. This law was given from God to Moses and Aaron. And that's why Pastor Joey doesn't like reading Leviticus. When you see Pastor Joey tonight, say, Pastor Dave read Leviticus, you'd be proud of him. You'll know what I mean when we read this together. When a woman, this is the law, this is what God told Moses and Aaron to give to the people. This is what this woman is banking on and living by. When a woman has a regular flow of blood, the impurity of her monthly period will last seven days, and anyone who touches her will be what? Unclean till evening. I put on verse 25 because really, this is really what she's dealing with as well. When a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at one time, other than her monthly period, or has discharge that continues beyond her, beyond her period, she will be unclean as long as she has a discharge, just as the days of her period. And so we have a physical situation going on here with the woman, but we have a much greater problem. And that is just always being unclean. What did the people of the Old Testament say when someone was unclean in their midst? What'd they shout? Unclean, unclean. You like to walk around with that tag on your back to the church people? No way, no way. 
This is why this woman was trembling in fear because she realized what she did when she touched his cloak. This woman was seeking healing secretly. She would not openly ask to be healed and she knew that the Old Testament commandment from God was for the people and yet Jesus, the proclaimed Messiah, God's very own son is standing in front of this woman. And I wanna talk to you tonight quickly about one thing, and I think many of us in this room tonight are listening to this teaching. I wonder tonight if there's a possible area in our life that we desperately needs healing. And it's been needing healing for so long. Maybe it's possible that there's areas of our lives, and if we're honest, we've been dealing with it for many years, but we're too embarrassed to admit it to someone or even to Jesus if we're honest. And I think of many times during our services at the end of the service where we give an opportunity to come forward and ask for prayer or healing or whatever you need. And I stand here, not just here, but even in Melbourne, doesn't matter. And it happens through all the churches. And every, every service, people have a choice. They can come up and receive prayer for whatever area of their life they need or they can walk out those double doors. And I thought about that. And I've been pastoring for a while and I've been in church for 20 years and I know how people react to those invitations. I know why they walk out that door and ignore the opportunities and not to address their hurts, sins, or even messes they're in. I just kind of wrote it this way. Perhaps they don't want change or they don't want to be embarrassed. Perhaps they don't want to be judged by others or perhaps they don't want to bring the light to a deep down dark need that only Jesus can heal. They don't want to go public. And I understand this woman's dilemma. And I want to talk to you for a minute. Pastors are people too. Do you know why men become pastors? They become pastors because they experience the transforming power and healing in their own lives that only comes from Jesus Christ. And for that, they want everyone who has lost, hurt, broken to know the experience of the same power and grace and the love of Jesus Christ. And pastors are ordinary people. And this week, maybe you heard or maybe you read about this on Facebook or in the news. I doubt that it was on the news, but there was an associate pastor. His name was Jared Wilson. His church was Harvest. If you've heard or think you know that church, that's Greg Glory's church. And that pastor committed suicide on Monday. Here's the interesting part. Jared and his wife and two wonderful daughters, they were passionate advocates for Christians, Christians who suffer from mental illness, depression, anxiety, and suicidal thoughts. The interesting thing is that him and his wife are co-founders of a mental health nonprofit organization called Anthem of Hope. The very mission that that pastor was called to was the very thing that took his life. I don't know why. None of us know why someone takes their life. But there was an article by Ed Stetzer that was written. I want to read to you something. Ed Stetzer's a church planner. He's just a pastor for church planners. I've been following him for years. I love this guy. But listen to what he says. And I want you to listen wholeheartedly. Pastors are often seen as those who do not need help. They're the ones who are supposed to provide help, not the ones who need it. 
Yet the harsh reality is that behind the curtain are pastors who are struggling and don't know where to turn. Sometimes the structure of the church itself creates and perpetuates that very curtain that keeps pastors from being in true relationships and getting the help they need. And they often feel alone. So we as pastors or anyone in leadership in the ministry that we think we have to have it all together, we understand this woman in this story. 12 years of bleeding, 12 long years of suffering, and Jesus shows up. This woman's faith says to her, if I can only touch Jesus's garment today, If I can only get close enough to Jesus, then I might be healed. Because she was willing to take the risk and touch Jesus despite breaking the Jewish law to do so. She did it anyway. She was willing to risk it all. No matter what it would take, there's no backup plan. The scripture said she tried, doctor. She spent everything she had She was broke and out of hope, but Jesus. Verse 34, Jesus says the greatest thing. He says to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. As I thought about that church as we close, I wonder how the story would end if the woman caved or submitted to her fear. Fear of being real with Jesus. I wonder what would happen if she left the crowd, obeyed the Old Testament, stood at a distance, watched Jesus heal the the daughter, raise her to life, and never came close to him. Now, as I was just thinking of how to end this, I wonder, as I was thinking about our flock, our congregation, I wonder how many of us focus on our fear and not our faith. This woman focused on her faith. I put it up on the screen. Please write this down. This will be on Facebook tonight as you go home and click on it. Fear leads us away from Jesus, but faith will always lead us back. That's the message tonight. That's what this woman did. See, this woman's faith healed her because she took risk. She didn't worry about anyone in the crowd. She didn't worry about anyone in the chairs. She didn't worry about the other leaders. She didn't worry about their opinions. She didn't worry whether she broke the law. She thought, if Jesus is who Jesus really says he is, then I'm going for it. I'm going to reach out and I'm going to touch that cloak. So as we close tonight, with every head bowed, I wonder if that's the case for anyone in this room. I wonder if there's a physical healing or emotional healing or open wounds that run so deep 
and you're too fearful to address it. You're afraid to talk to somebody here. You don't trust. You're worried about your reputation. Can I just kindly say that Jesus reigns in this church? He won't tolerate criticism, gossip, slander, malice. What he wants is for all of us to love one another no matter what. He wants us as a people to be there for one another and to minister to one another no matter what the cost. And so I just challenge you, church, tonight, as you just meditate with your heads bowed, the next time you're asked to come up front, or the next time you find a pastor or a leader or someone that you respect or trust in, and you've been on the fence about an area of your life, I just ask you kindly, walk in faith, step out, have that conversation, approach somebody that you know will guide you in a biblical way so that you can receive that healing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, we thank you for this story in this book. We thank you that, that this woman, well, after 12 years, she saw the opportunity and she, she changed. She did it in fear and God, you healed her. Lord Jesus, that's who you are. You heal people. I pray for every person in this room. Lord, I won't even do an altar call or ask anybody to come up at the end of this service. But Lord, if there's anyone in this room that you know that you just spoke to them, God, I pray that they would have the faith to contact one of us or to contact someone that they're close to Maybe they're in a close relationship with a brother or a sister and they've never opened up and, they've, and they're suffering God and they need a healing. doesn't matter if it's 20 years of wounds or whether it's yesterday. We just pray that we as a church would be that place where we would see you walking in our midst and that you would teach us whether we're on whatever end and, and you will find each and every one of us, Lord, on one end of the stick or the other at times in our life and that's okay but we pray that if there's anybody here that they wouldn't be suffering in silent, that they wouldn't be huddled in fear, or that they wouldn't be putting on a facade or a mask because they think they have to impress. God, we just pray that this would be a place where there'd be total freedom and healing because your spirit is here and it's alive. We thank you for Wednesday night services. We thank you for the speakers that, that, that come here and that minister to each and every one of us, God, through your Holy Spirit pray this in Jesus' name and his whole church. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Calvary Chapel Sebastian podcast channel. If this message impacted your life, we encourage you to share it with a friend. We're located at 1251 Sebastian Boulevard, just northeast of intersection 90th Avenue and State Road 512 in Sebastian, Florida. Our service times are Saturday evening at 6 p.m., Sunday morning at 10.45 a.m., and Wednesdays at 6.30 p.m.